Good morning. It's good to see you. If you've got your Bible, go with me to Matthew chapter 5, continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a good thing that you're here today. If you're joining us online, we're glad you're joining us at home. If you're still with us, it's a good sign. We just spent the last couple weeks talking about anger and murder, adultery and lust. Uh, we talked about divorce and remarriage. So you made it through that. Good job. You, you stuck with us far better if you went home and applied God's word to your life, that we might not just be hearers of the word, but what, church? Doers of the word. So I pray and have been praying that God would lead you in that. So we come now to a section in the Sermon on the Mount where as we look at it, we might be prone, it's almost as if Jesus said, I've been addressing these sort of massive, momentous, sort of big things in life, these big rock type of things where, you know, any of us, probably over the last couple of weeks, if, if you've been with us, uh, you would recognize, man, these are kind of the big event sort of things of life, uh, big rock sorts of things. And now he's going to turn his attention to the words that we speak every day. Just the most daily thing that he can talk about is what, when you speak, what comes out of your mouth? As if to say... The, the holiness of life that we're after here for my followers, what it looks like to be a follower of mine, is not just about the big moments of life, it's also about every single moment and every single word. Uh, so lest we think that we're doing good in these big areas, but ignore the small ones, so to speak, because they're not small in importance, but they're sort of daily in that way. I wanna address some of that with you now, Jesus says. Does that, does that make sense? And so if you haven't been with us, just to kind of catch you up, the way Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount is he begins by talking about our character. And he says, hey, my followers are not just people who do certain things. They're the kind of people who are a certain way. And in fact, I bring about a transforming power in their lives through my blood on the cross and my resurrection and then my spirit indwelling them through faith. I create a new type of person. And so Jesus first talks about our character, who we are. And then he moves from that to talking about what we do because our actions matter very much. And so he begins in these six sections after that first section about our character to talk about the kinds of things that believers do. And so that's what we're focused on now. We're in the fourth of kind of the six sections coming after the Beatitudes where we've been talking about everything from what we do with our eyes uh, to uh, how we treat our marriages and everything you know, kind of in between. And so now we come to Jesus talking with us about our words about the words that we speak. Well, how many of you in like the 90s, I think it, was, it would have been the 90s, watched the show Seinfeld? Anybody watch Seinfeld? Yeah, so a handful, yeah. So if you remember, and if you don't, you might even be familiar with a couple characters on the show. There's Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld, and there's George Costanza, and there's a sort of an infamous episode where Jerry is trying to figure out how to beat a lie detector test. He, he doesn't want to tell the truth. He wants to figure out how to beat this lie detector test. And so he says, well, I've got access to the most duplicitous, deceitful mind that anyone's ever known in my friend George. And so he goes to him and says, how do I beat this lie detector test? To which George responds, like asking me to, you know, help you lie like I lie is like asking, is like someone asking Pavarotti, help me sing like you sing. You're just either born with it or you aren't, right? And so then as, as Jerry's going, okay, well, and he's walking out of the coffee shop where he's getting the advice, George says, Jerry, just remember that it's not a lie, does anyone know what he says? If you believe it. Now here's the interesting thing. In the mid 90s, that statement was funny 
because it was so obviously wrong. That's what made it funny, is you, lost, you watched the show and you went, that's really funny that anyone would think that just because they didn't want something to be true or because they believed it wasn't a lie, that therefore changed the very fabric of the reality that it actually was a lie. And so we all laughed. And now we live in a time where the relativism of postmodernity has brought us to a place as a society where that's the norm. It's the norm to believe that I can dictate what is true and not true. Now, here's the interesting thing. We're completely inconsistent in the application of that standard across our society. Because if you look at political news, we are constantly calling leaders and politicians to tell the truth and calling them out when they lie. And that's a good thing, by the way, that we would do that. This politician, we usually point to the one of the opposing party. We call them the liar, right? But in general, there's this recognition that we call on politicians to know they're, they're stretching the truth. They're telling lies. That's not okay. And you'll find it in every paper. And in the same paper, in the op-ed section, you will find some opinion that basically says, that's my truth, but it doesn't have to be your truth. There's no such thing as the truth. And yet we call on politicians or leaders to not tell the truth. And can we just be honest for a minute and say that quite often in our own personal lives, we justify white lies. We justify not speaking the truth. We want others to speak the truth. We recognize the importance of it. We recognize that we can't make good decisions unless we understand. Like the, the most ardent postmodern relativists who would say there's no such thing as absolute truth will still tell you that if they got overcharged on their bill for their electricity, that, and if they were to call the electricity company and they were to say, well, that's your truth, that you think you got overcharged, my truth is that we charge you the right amount, what will that person respond? No. You overcharged me. The most ardent relativist still recognizes or lives as if truth has to happen because you can't communicate without truth. You can't make decisions without truth. We intuitively and instinctively know the necessity and the value of the idea that there are things that are true and there are things that are not. We know that. We live that way. Every one of us, well, even if you might be sort of skeptical of that idea, I would, I would argue just count the number of times in your day where you're depending on the fact that someone you believe told you the truth in order to make a decision. In order to function, we recognize the value of truth. Now, what Jesus is gonna speak to us about today is this. He's going to say that everyone who says they're, they're his follower, everyone who's gonna call themselves a Christian is going to need to love the truth and always speak the truth. Love the truth and always speak the truth. He's been dealing with all these sort of massive categories. Now he comes to one that is so mundane and daily that we recognize that its massiveness is no less. It's just massive because it's so part of the fabric of life that we as Christians learn to love the truth and speak the truth and have no falsehood in us. He's gonna talk to us about oaths Vows and swearing, not curse words, but swearing, making promises, uh, and talk to us about that and what it means to keep your word. And so let me read it to you. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, and we're going to read through verse 37. It says this, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, 
for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So friends, this is the teaching of the Lord Jesus as it pertains to truth and then us speaking the truth. Now here's what I'd like to do, just chart a roadmap for you. Let's just walk through that text, shall we? Let's just go verse by verse through the text and understand why Jesus is teaching us in these verses that we have to love the truth and that we have to speak the truth. And then I wanna help you answer three questions. I wanna ask three questions that will help us do just that. Three questions that I think will help us both love the truth and then also speak the truth. Right? Well, I'll tell you what those questions are as we, after we walk through the text here. So let's, let's just get our eyes into the Bible. If you've got your Bible with you, get your eyes into it. We'll put it on the screen as well. But verse 33, Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Now remember, he's beginning every one of these six sections that we're in with that kind of an idea. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And what he's doing is he's saying, this is what the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, this is what they taught. Now I'm gonna tell you, what is really true, like as, as the one who fulfills the law as the, and, the, and the prophets, I'm gonna tell you what you really should think about these things. So he says here, you've heard that it was said, and then what does he say? You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So in other words, what he's saying is, the scribes and Pharisees have taught you that if you take an oath, if you make a promise to God or to someone else in the name of God, then you need to do what you said you would do. Now let me ask, is that correct? Yeah, the answer is yes, absolutely. We're gonna find that Jesus is not saying that that's wrong, he's gonna say you haven't gone far enough. He's not gonna say that's wrong, he's gonna say you haven't applied it far enough. So in other words, what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching was, if you make an oath before God, if I say, hey, I, in other words, it might be like saying, as God is my witness, I will do this. As God is my witness, I will do this, right? And so he's saying, when you do that, if you appeal to God and you say you will do something, then you need to follow through. You need to do it. And that's absolutely correct. That's not false. Now, remember that last week, we saw that when Jesus was saying, hey, you've heard that it was said, he's always dealing with some Old Testament passage or text that the scribes and Pharisees were looking at and interpreting. So last week, it was Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. And they were reading that about divorce and marriage and they were saying, this is what this means. And Jesus corrects what they had taught. Now, he's not looking at one specific Old Testament text here, but it's a combination of Old Testament texts. Numbers chapter 30, verse two, Deuteronomy chapter 23, where you find these kinds of statements that essentially he's summarizing and saying, if you swear something by God, then you need to follow through and do it. And again, not wrong. Jesus is just gonna say that they're not going far enough. Now let's understand first, we need to understand what an oath is because we're finding that idea of an oath or swearing here, essentially promising. So let's understand what that is. Here's what an oath is when you're talking about it in this context of scripture. An oath is a promise that you appeal to some other person or power to affirm. It's a promise or it's a statement that you make and when you make it, you appeal to some other, typically higher power or higher authority to bear witness that what you're saying is true. So in other words, yeah, if I say God is my witness, what I'm essentially saying is if God were here and you could hear him talk, he would say that what I'm saying, he would affirm that what I'm saying to you is true. Does that make sense? That's what an oath is. And by implication then, if it turns out that I'm lying to you, you can expect that God himself 
would punish me, would discipline me. So I'm essentially putting myself underneath his hand of discipline if what I'm telling you is not true. That's what an oath is, is that kind of appeal to a higher power. Now, the thing that you need to recognize is that they made oaths in the Old Testament, not just to God, but to a lot of things. That's why Jesus kind of gets into, as we read, hey, if you make an oath uh, by heaven, or don't make an oath by the earth, or don't make an oath by, the hair, by your head. So he's gonna talk about these different categories of oaths that were, would have been kinds of categories that they would have been making. Now, two things are going on here with the Pharisees in what they were teaching. Number one, they were teaching that there were different categories of speech. In other words, there was one category of speech, oaths, vows, promises, that when you talk that way, you better be telling the truth. And there's another category of speech, ordinary language, where it wasn't as important that you spoke the truth. Now, does that sound odd to your ears? Good. It sh- well, some of you nodded. Some of you just stared blankly. All the people at home were nodding. I see. I, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, that should sound odd, right? But that's what the Pharisees were getting. There's, there's categories of speech, and one matters more than another. The second thing was, as I just said, they were teaching that there were even different categories of oaths. So within the category of oaths, where it's very important that you tell the truth, there are some oaths that must absolutely be kept, and then there are others that you didn't necessarily need to keep as, you know, they weren't as meaningful and they weren't as important that you kept them. If you want a little, like, primer on this, just go to Matthew 23 later on today and you can see Jesus kind of saying the same thing to the scribes and Pharisees there where he's saying, you, you say that if you swear by the gold in the temple, you've got to keep your vow, but if you just swear by the temple, you don't have to. And he's saying, that's foolishness. You, you're, you're failing to understand the purpose of making a, a vow or an oath or a promise. So the promises, essentially, if you were gonna boil down the Pharisees' teaching on the subject, it would have been this. If you make an oath and you appeal to God when you make that oath, then you gotta keep that one. But if you make an oath and you appeal to some other lesser power, right, then you don't need to. So maybe you can think of it this way. If I say God is my witness, whatever I say afterwards, I've gotta do it. I've gotta keep it. But if I say, I swear on my mother's grave, that's not as important. I don't know how mom feels about that, all right? But like the idea is that's a lesser degree of making an oath doesn't need to be kept. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. Now, Jesus, let's see how he responds to that. So that's verse 33. That's what's going on there. Now verse 34, look with me. He says, but I say to you, Do not take an oath at all. Okay, pause, just that one phrase. That's what I want to focus on. Do not take an oath at all. And he's going to list different types of oaths. He said, well, don't do this one and don't do that one. We'll come to that in just a second. But when he says, do not take an oath at all, the question, and some believers have taught this, is does that mean a believer can never take any kind of an oath? I mean, think about a doctor. They take the Hippocratic oath, right? Think about a politician who runs for office and they take an oath of? office, right? So, man, does this mean believers can't be politicians? Does it mean believers can't be doctors? No, it doesn't. Does it mean they can be that, they just can't take the oath? No, it doesn't mean that either. Here's what Jesus is teaching. He's not saying you should never take an oath. He's saying you should never need an oath for people to know you're telling the truth. You should never need a special category of speech. See, the Pharisees are telling you that if you speak in this category, then it's important that you tell the truth, this one less so. He's saying everything you say should be the truth. 
and you shouldn't need to appeal to some special category of oath or vow or promise in order to, for people to know that this is who you are. You're a truth teller and you will speak the truth no matter what. He's saying every word that comes out of your mouth is equally important. Doesn't mean you shouldn't take an oath or that it's unimportant to. There are times where taking an oath uh, enables those who are listening to, to feel a, a greater degree of trust, those who don't know you. And it would be appropriate and love to take that oath. There's times where an oath of office, I think, is absolutely appropriate. Let me tell you, there's places in Scripture where oaths are clearly affirmed. So the Old Testament gives standards about when and how oaths should be taken. The Old Testament also tells us that Abraham took an oath. Joseph took an oath. So, and they're affirmed in doing so. Jesus himself, when he's on trial, is silent until the moment that Pilate appeals to him, or no, sorry, the, um, it's the high priest, not Pilate at that point, appeals to him and says, I place you under oath to tell the truth. And at that moment, Jesus speaks because an oath is brought forth. It's an affirmation of that idea. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter six, Verse 17, God himself, the author of Hebrews says, makes an oath with us, has declared something in an oath. So I, I find it hard to think that this, what Jesus is saying here, means absolutely never take an oath. I think better to understand that what Jesus is saying is you should never need to take an oath in order for someone to know that you're telling the truth and that what you say you will do, you will what, church? You will do. You with me? So then what happens next Right, as Jesus goes on to then, if you follow the text, that's verse 34, then he proceeds to give these different types of oaths that, that he's saying, don't, don't swear by heaven, for it's God's throne is there. Don't swear by the earth, that's God's footstool. You don't need to differentiate between all those categories. Here's what Jesus is saying. He is putting together all those things and he's saying, here's all things that you might sort of say, hey, I swear by this thing. He says, don't you understand? that every single one of those things is something that is underneath God's authority and power. That's the, that's the point of all those examples. He's saying, heaven, that's where God is. He's saying the earth, God rules over the earth. Jerusalem, the city of the king, he's saying that's where God has sent the Messiah. God rules and reigns over that place. Your head, God rules and reigns over your head and you have no power to make your hair black or white. You can't control that, right? You know, I mean, this is pre-formula, uh, right? He's saying, you have, no, you have no ability to change any of this, but God reigns supreme over all of it. And what's the point? Therefore, you need to recognize that every word you speak, you speak as if in the presence of God. So whether you say, I vow before God to do this, I promise before God to do that, that would have been the oath you're supposed to keep. He's saying, every word should be the truth because every word is spoken as if to God, not just to the person you're speaking to. Now, is that a sobering reality? When you think about every word you speak in your office, in your home, every word you speak to your family, every word that you say is said as if being said to God, the creator of the universe. That's the point that Jesus is making as he walks us through uh, this understanding here. So if the standard of this text, here's the standard, we already said it, Jesus is saying you have to love the truth and you have to always speak the truth. That's what we've just kind of, in walking through the text, I hope you see that. That's what Jesus is getting at. Now, let's talk about those three questions. Let me help us answer three questions. Question number one, question number one, why should we love the truth? Or why do we love the truth? As followers of Jesus, what is it that makes us love the truth? Question number two, how does the gospel help us speak the truth? 
How does it bring a new power, a new ability to walk out of being someone who speaks half-truths and lies, which half-truths are lies? How does he help us walk out of that and into being someone who speaks the truth? And then lastly, because it sneaks up on us sometimes. This, like, have you ever had the situation where you said something kind of knee-jerk, and you're like, oh, man, that wasn't the truth. It wasn't premeditated, but you, you, you spoke something that was less than the truth. Yes? No one wants to raise, don't raise your hand. It's okay. I get it right? Anyone who said no, you've just lied. All right. So we have a problem. So the, the idea, of course, is that we, we do that. And so what I, the last question I want to ask is, when are we most tempted to lie? I want to help you see. Now, again, all of these, every one of those three questions could have a lot of answers. I'm just going to give you a few that I think are most helpful to you. So question number one, why do we love the truth? Well, there's two answers I want to give you. The first answer to that question is we love the truth because Jesus is the truth. We love the truth because Jesus himself is the truth. Remember John chapter 14, verse 6. Thomas, Jesus has just said, you know the way to where I'm going. He's talking about departing and leaving them, the disciples. And he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus' famous response in John 14, 6 is what? I am the way. Now, in response to what he's been talking about with the disciples, that would be a sufficient response. That would be enough. That's really all he needs to say. I am the way. Like, in other words, believe in me, faith in me, and you will go where I am going. You will be with me where I'm the doorway to get there. I'm the way. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, I'm not just the way, I am the truth and the life. Now let's focus on that middle statement. I am the truth Here's what that means for those of us who are followers of Jesus. When Jesus declared himself to be the truth, what he was saying was everything in the universe is either true or false based upon how it aligns with who I am. I am the one that dictates and determines what is true. He wasn't saying I align myself with all things that are true. He was saying truth aligns itself with me. Do you see how massive that is? Imagine, here's how you can understand how massive that is. Imagine for a second that, and let's avoid some heresy here, but be real careful, okay? Imagine for just one second that everything in the universe was determined to be true or false by whether it aligned with your character or not. That would be a weightiness of being, okay, now stop imagining that because it's heretical. Don't do that anymore. That's the weightiness of Jesus' character. That's who he is. It is true or it is false based upon whether it aligns with who he is. That also means for us, friends, that truth can never be treated as a, just a category of ideas. Truth for a believer. And this may be helpful. If you're, if, if you're skeptical about uh, faith in Christ, this may be helpful for you to understand. We don't approach, as followers of Jesus, we don't approach truth as a category of ideas and come up to it and say, Okay, is it true, false, true, okay? We don't approach it as just sort of a, a set of thoughts. We approach truth as a person, which means that truth is inherently relational. And that speaks to us about the way we live our lives in every moment of our lives. We're not just trying to figure out facts and ideas and align ourselves with them. We are trying to know a person, and if we want to know him, then we have to be a people of the truth because he is the truth. You see it? That's why we love the truth because the truth is how we know Jesus. 
The truth is how we not just know him factually, it's how we experience his nearness and relationship with him. Anytime we depart from the truth, we are departing from him. Anytime we lean into the truth, we are leaning in to him. Do you see the value of the truth? That's why we love it. Not because it's some set of ideas that we go, yeah, those seem like good ideas. We want to align ourselves with those. That's not how we think. The way we think is to say, he is the truth and I want him. That's it. The second reason we love the truth is because there's no freedom apart from the truth. Earlier in the Gospel of John, same Gospel, John chapter eight, Jesus is talking and he's talking about being captives to sin and he's saying everyone, you, me, everybody that's ever lived is enslaved to sin. But he says, basically, I've come to show you what is true. And then he makes this great statement in John chapter eight, verse 36, and, or 32, sorry. And you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Now he's talking about himself. He is the truth. He's gonna clarify it in John 14. So he's talking there about himself. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, what he's saying is you should love the truth because there's no freedom apart from it. No matter how hard you try, no matter what your desires tell you, no matter how much you might feel like you want something to be a life-giving, freedom-giving pathway, the thing that you need to understand is that you will never experience what freedom really is until you align yourself with the truth that is found in Jesus. There's just, there is no freedom apart from truth. So we should never be afraid or ashamed to appeal to the reality that to come to Jesus is to come to the best version of your life. And friends, that doesn't mean uh, all sunshine and roses, right? It means difficulty and trial and perseverance. It also means being led beside quiet rivers and still waters and in green pastures. Both those things will be true in your life. You will have moments of peace and rest and relaxation and joy and fullness, and you will have moments of suffering and difficulty and a need to persevere. Those things will always be present in the life of every believer. Somebody say amen to that. That will absolutely be true. Yet in all of it, the only pathway to freedom, to true experience of freedom, is always in alignment with the truth that Jesus is. We love the truth because it sets us free. That's a good reason to love the truth. And friends, if you're weighing what is the truth and you're kind of caught up in that idea, this, this great philosophical pondering of truth, I would just urge you to consider the person of Jesus. Just read the Gospels of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just see if you've ever encountered anyone like him. Look, we fall down and fail all the time. We're gonna be a bad example <laughs> at points, those of us who are followers of his. But just look at him, and can I just tell you that you will not be disappointed. He is the truth, and you will find, if you give honest assessment of him, you'll find there's no one like him. That's why we love the truth. Now, there's more, like I said, there's more reasons. I mean, let me encourage you in your life groups this week as you're in discussion, it'd be great for you guys to ponder what are other reasons we love the truth because there's more, yes? But here's the ones I wanted to give to you today. Now, second question. Let's go to that second question. How does the gospel enable us to always speak the truth? That's our second question. How does the gospel always enable us to speak the truth? Well, in order to answer that question, we first have to understand why we lie. And here's what I would argue. I know there's a, a lot of reasons why we might lie, but I think you can categorize them into two categories, self-preservation and self-advancement. Self-preservation 
and self-advancement. In other words, I lie because if I tell the truth, I might get in trouble or I might be persecuted or some difficulty might come into my life. I need to preserve myself, protect myself, save myself, so I lie. Self-advancement is I want to get ahead. I want to move forward in life, in my career, in my you know, relationship with this person, and my sense is that if I tell the truth, there's going to be a setback in that. So we lie or tell a half-truth to preserve, or sorry, to advance ourselves. Here, I, can I just say, I have great sympathy and compassion for brothers and sisters who work in the marketplace. I know it's hard. There's pressure on a daily basis, I would imagine, quite often, to bend the truth. But I want to exert a special challenge to you, particularly those of you who are working in the marketplace, in the business sector. And God has placed you there. He's planted you there. Your, your command to tell the truth does not stop when you enter your workplace. Your need to tell the truth and the freedom that you will experience in telling truth, does not stop when you sort of dim, darken the doorway of your place of employment. Whether you're the employer or the employee, whatever may come in that context, as difficult as it may be, lying for the sake of self-preservation, self-advancement, is not the way of Christ. Because Jesus is teaching us we must love the truth and we must speak the truth. Speak it to your customers. Speak it to your boss. Speak to your coworkers at all times because we are to be a people marked by it. Now, let's unpack that. How does the gospel then, if that's, you know, if that's a lot of where our lying comes from, self-preservation, self-advancement, where, how does the gospel speak to that? Let's take them one at a time. The gospel, think about this. What does the gospel tell us by way of self-preservation? What it tells us is that we have an inheritance that is assured for us that we cannot lose. And if that's the case, then we don't have to preserve ourselves because the future that we are assured is preserved for us by him. It's guaranteed. Just think for a moment what the gospel promises you. You will have an authority to judge the earth and angels along with Christ. That's what the scriptures say. So authority and power will be yours in him. The scriptures say that you will have an experience of joy for all eternity that never ebbs and flows again. Imagine what your existence will be like when there is no fullness of joy, lesser joy. Fullness of joy, lesser joy. It will only always be joy to its fullest amount every day for always. Your hope will be completely fulfilled. There will be no ounce of the hope that you have in him that will remain unfilled. So if you can think of it like a tank, the hope will fill every part of that tank. This is, I mean, we could go on and on, but the point is this, church family, you have been assured an inheritance in Christ that makes self-preservation a silly, a silly pathway to walk on. You don't need to preserve yourself because the gospel has now come in and assured you an inheritance that is yours. Why would you lie to try and keep what you cannot lose? You think you lie to preserve something you need. You think you lie to preserve some reputation that you don't want to lose. But friends, I'm telling you, you're lying to preserve things that are a waste of your time. And when you tell the truth, you walk in the assurance and in the truth that all that you really need and shall inherit is guaranteed and cannot be taken from you. That's what the truth, when you speak the truth and it costs you, 
you are still assured of what you cannot lose, which is far greater, far greater than whatever you lose for speaking the truth. You with me? What about self-advancement? What does the gospel say to that? Well, here's what the gospel does. It comes in and it changes you from the inside out so that what you want and what you love most is Christ and his kingdom and others and no longer myself. Here's what the gospel says. This life is no longer about you. You live for the advancement of the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus. That's what you live for. And by the way, when you believe this gospel, I come into you and replace your love of self and your desire to advance yourself with a love for me and love for others, which outstrips and outpaces your love for yourself. That's the transformation of the gospel. That's why the gospel is the answer to, to lying for the sake of self-advancement. I mean, how many of us have fudged the truth to, to make ourselves look a little better? So that's the key, by the way, to succeeding in the world so often, isn't it? Don't be great, just look great. Just, just polish a sterling reputation on the outside and who cares what's really on the inside? That'll be enough to get people to go, wow, that person. And up the ladder you go. And more money and more prestige and more authority. Friends, it happens every day, would you agree? Happens all the time. You might very well get left behind in the advancement cycle if you are a person who regularly speaks the truth and doesn't try to make yourself look better than you actually are. But friends, you don't need to advance yourself. The gospel has come in and not only given you the assurance of the, the thing, right? In the future, the inheritance, but it's also taught you to not be about yourself. I was having a conversation with my oldest daughter this morning and she reminded me of this. She asked the question as we were getting ready for church. She said, we were going over her memory verse. We're talking about 1 John 1, 9 and we were talking about if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we were talking about confession, repentance, sin. And she, she asked with you know, five minutes when we needed to walk out the door, why did God create the devil? I said, well, we've got to get to church, so you know. And I said, it's a great question. And I said, I said, well, Kenley, God doesn't answer that specific question in the Bible, but do you know what he does tell us? He tells us why he does everything that he does. Why does God do everything that he does? And Kenley said, for his glory. And I said, that's right. And if God determined that it would glorify him to send his son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins, to allow sin to be in the world, the creation of the devil, the rebellion of him against his own will. If, if he did that, and we don't understand all the ins and outs of why he did that, but what we do know is that it's for his glory, which is why he does everything. He doesn't do, he doesn't do things, he loves us, but his, his love for us is not his primary motivation for anything that he does. It's not. His motivation is always and only his own glory. And I said, Kinley, is it right for God to glorify himself? And she said, yes. I said, is it right for you and I to glorify ourselves? She said, no. I said, why not? Why the difference? She said, because he's God. Amen. Amen. The gospel comes into our hearts and tells us this is no longer about me. Or it was, now it's not. I live 
for the advancement of his kingdom, his glory, and the person of Christ. So I'm done with lies and half-truths to get myself ahead. I won't do it anymore. You see how the gospel is the solution? To our lying tongues. Now, let's ask the third question. When are we prone to lie? And let's just... You know, again, there's probably a lot of scenarios, but there's three that I want to give you that I think, because I don't want them to sneak up on you. As my people, this week, I don't want these scenarios to sneak up on you. So here's where I think we are most prone to lie, catches us by surprise. One, when keeping our word is inconvenient. That's the first. When keeping our word is inconvenient. That's part of what Jesus is getting at when he says, affirming the scribes and Pharisees, if you make a promise to God, then you need to keep that promise. And he doesn't say not just when you make it to God, but just whenever you, whenever you say something, you need to keep it. Whether you said I promise or not, whether your fingers were crossed behind your back or whether they weren't, if you say it, you need to do it. That's part of what he means when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your word be simply yes or no. Speak the truth in such a way that it's straightforward and clearly you're not hedging it. But then when you say something, you need to do it. Now, we live with this reality of this fear of missing out, yes? And so quite often, we see something better comes up and therefore we had this commitment. We said we would do something and something else comes up and so we go, ah, that looks better. And so we make an excuse and we get out of this and we go and do this. Whenever you don't do what you said you would do, you have made yourself a liar, this is not a like, oh, I just changed my mind. When you do it, now I, I know there's scenarios where you can ask permission, say, I know I committed to this. Would you be willing to grant me uh, you know, a release from that promise that I make? That, you, that's certainly appropriate to do at points when it's needed. But friends, generally what Jesus is teaching is saying, when you say you will do something, do it. Yeah, I mean, you came to church for some genius stuff today, right? Real complex. When you say you will do something, do it. When you say you won't do something, don't do it so that you don't make yourself a liar. That's what Jesus is saying. And friends, what we do is we have this like, oh, I'm, you know, something better comes along. We want to beg out. Now, listen, friends, don't do this then. Oh, well, then I just won't say yes or no until the last minute in case something better comes up. Because I've done college ministry long enough to know that's how that goes. <laughs> say Make a commitment and then stick by your commitment. Can I tell you something? You will never miss out in the truest sense of that word if you keep your commitments. You absolutely will miss out when you jettison what you said you would do just because something else seems like more fun. In the short term, more fun. In the long term, what you've done is make a dent in your integrity, a dent in your ability to be a truth teller. The second scenario where I think we often are caught um, and are most tempted to lie is when we're caught doing something we shouldn't. When we're caught doing something we shouldn't. And then we, what do we do? It's, it's, it's like an impulse. First time I can remember my dad punishing me was for lying. I think I was about five years old. I hit my sister. I don't remember where I hit her, but I hit her. And she ran to dad and she said, dad, Trent hit me. And then my dad looked at me and he said, did you hit your sister? And I, knee jerk, said, no, no, I didn't. Well, how many of you know, like if you're a parent, isn't it amazing how obvious your kids' lies are? I mean, they're just so, kids are stupid sometimes. Not mine, I love you guys. <laughs> but sometimes you, you say stuff. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't good. 
sometimes it's like, it's so obvious. And that's exactly, I mean, what for some reason my dad, because I was five and terrible at lying, right? And he was like, yeah, like, I mean, I see the mark on your sister's arm, right? Like, I know you're lying. And so here's, this is burned in my brain because I remember my dad in that moment, he said to me, Trent, had you told me the truth, there would have been a punishment, but it would have been far less than the punishment I'm about to give you. You should have spoken the truth. In this house, we do not lie. That stuck with me, burned in my brain. In this house, we do not lie. What was he doing? He was being a good father. He was instructing his son that the truth, no matter the cost of it, is worth telling. Always tell the truth. Sometimes when we're caught in something we shouldn't have done, we're prone to want to lie. Friends, can I just tell you, the pathway, that's a pathway to greater pain. You're adding lying on top of something you've already done wrong. Don't add another wrong on top of a first wrong. Tell the truth. Receive the consequence for what you've done. Walk in confession and repentance. Trust in God's mercy and move forward. Don't compound the problem. And then third and last one I wanted to point out is this. I think we're prone to, to move towards lies when we think the truth will offend or when we know the truth will offend. And so we tell lies because we don't want to lose a relationship because we're worried about how it will affect that other person or, you know, perhaps for our own, what it might do to our own careers or whatever it may be. But friends, can I just tell you that when the truth offends, like if you're worried about losing a relationship because the offensiveness of truth, now it's one thing to, you can present truth gently. Yes, we all know this. There's a way to be discerning and to be truthful and to be gentle. And we should absolutely be that. But when we fail to tell the truth because we're worried about what it might do to a relationship, do you realize you're devaluing the relationship by saying this relationship isn't worth the truth? This relationship is not one that can handle, nor is it one that is worth speaking the truth in. What you've just said is that relationship's not worth having anyway. Any relationship that's worth having is worth speaking the truth in. So friends, let me just help you there and say, don't hedge on the truth because you're worried that it will offend. Speak the truth in love and with gentleness, but speak the truth. We are to be a people who love the truth and speak the truth. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. And I just wanna encourage you now to remember that the power of the gospel is this, that he has made you a new creature, something new. You don't have to try to force truth-telling as a concept from the outside into your heart. Cram it in there and then figure out how to, how to do it. God has come and made you someone who tells the truth. That's what he's done through his work on the cross. He's made you a person of the truth. Now what you have to do is allow that to be lived out in every word that you speak from the top of your head to the tips of your toes, to the soles of your feet, to the tip of your fingers. Let that truth-telling nature that God has now brought into you, let it be who you are and how you live. That's the miracle of the gospel, is that it comes and changes us. And praise God that we were once liars and separated from God, and now he has made us truth-tellers. Let us be who we are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we love the truth because you are the truth. And so our prayer is that you would 
let your word come to bear upon us now. We've listened to your word. It's you speaking to us. And we thank you that you declared to us that we must not be those who lie. So help us. We confess that we have done that. We confess that we've done it since coming to know you. We've protected ourselves, tried to preserve ourselves. We've tried to advance ourselves by not speaking the truth. Forgive us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we confess to you, as your word has told us that you will. And keep sanctifying us day in and day out that each word that we speak is increasingly truthful. With each passing day, we are increasing as truth tellers. Help us to do that. Give us the courage. Give us the wisdom. Give us the love in our hearts for you and our neighbors so that we might do it. Would you now receive our praises? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.